Today's topic will cover the subject of self-determination and the sovereignty of the individual. Listen in. I'll be giving the email address for this podcast at the end of the episode. Uh, For anyone that wants to contact me for any kind of feedback, if you want to participate in the dialogue, or if you have any ideas for future episodes, listen in. I'll be giving it at the end of the podcast. Enjoy the show. episode one and for all the great messages of support that I received. In less than 24 hours, I got a bunch of positive feedback, I got a lot of constructive criticism, and I got a lot more listens than I really expected. So thank you very much. And to all those who offered that feedback and advice on the recording and the editing to improve the quality, thank you very much. It will help me a lot to improve what I do. Uh, I have to say I honestly enjoyed this a lot more than I had anticipated. This is a lot of fun. So here we are, episode two. Uh, The topic for today that I chose to discuss is self-determination, and I'm going to touch a bit on the idea of the sovereignty of the individual. I will try and avoid going too far into the political theory behind this, as it can be a highly politicized discussion, and I will try to keep it within the idea of self-improvement and how we can better align our desires and motivations also while collectively and respectfully living in a society. Now obviously our topic of discussion can extend to groups, nations, and entities well beyond the uh, concept of the individual, but I want to keep it as simple as possible, and I will keep it about us, the individuals, rather than social groups or nations. If you haven't listened into episode 1 yet, I highly recommend that you do, as this idea ties in well with the idea of hedonism, and the metaphor behind the dead butterfly, as I discussed in episode one. So to begin, I will start by explaining self-determination. Simply put, it is the ability for an individual to be able to take decisions and to choose the governance of his or her own life without any form of influence or external influence by governments, social groups, or even other uh, individuals. In a more political sphere, it assumes the idea that every person has the right to vote or follow that political party that which they choose to follow. Which, let's be honest, it's a bit of a touchy issue lately, it seems. However, historically, we'll be honest, it's always been kind of an issue. So in short, as an individual, you or I should have the right to determine our path forward in life without any form of interference by any government or company or other individuals. Now obviously it can get a bit more complicated when we take into account the fact that we live in a society with other people, so there are limits into what we can or can't do when it starts to step upon other people's rights and freedoms. Now I'll discuss a bit more the concept of the sovereignty of the individual. This is usually a philosophy or a school of thought that comes associated when people speak about the Enlightenment period during the 17th and the 18th century. It focuses a lot on the ideas of individual freedoms and autonomy and had a very strong influence in shaping the American Revolution as well as the Declaration of Independence. It also helped shape the ideas behind the French Revolution, which was basically the separation or rather the destruction of the French monarchy and the installation of parliament instead of a monarchic government. Some notable philosophers that helped really develop this idea and popularize the idea uh, are John Locke, 
an English philosopher and a physician born in the early 18th century, and Jean-Jacques Rousseau, a Genevan philosopher, writer, and composer of the same era. So I'm sure some of you have already heard the term, the natural rights to life, liberty, and property protected by the state. That stems directly from this philosophy. And I mean, this argument is used to cover all kinds of things from individual freedoms, abortion rights, gun ownership. It can get really complicated, but the basic theory behind it is that everyone has the natural right to life, to liberty, and to property protected by the state. This, of course, this idea was very revolutionary at the time, since the ideas of individual freedoms were not a very common thought in society at the time, something that we really tend to take for granted these days in modern times. And it really hasn't been that long that we have that way of thinking of personal freedoms and doing what we want to do, because historically, the average person was usually tied down to uh, a piece of land or a lord. Later on, as industrialization slowly evolved and settled in and, and the cities grew, people left the land and they went to work in the factories and they broke away from the feudal contract, which is basically what tied people down to a lord or a land. So people left the land, left the farms to go work in the cities and factories. Now, obviously, in the cases of communism, where you look, for example, at Maoist China and Russian communism, a lot of people were forced either to work on collective farms or to forced to work in the factories, so they weren't able to determine their path in life. There wasn't a lot of freedom. But taking that out into account, if we're looking at a, a, a more free society or societies that move towards that path towards democracy, we tended to see a more the beginnings of a free-thinking society. Now, on the one hand, when you live under a lord or whether you work for a factory boss or whatever the case is, your life, in a way, is already preordained. You really don't have much to think about apart from fulfilling your contract and not starving to death or meeting your quotas. So, apart from, in the more recent cases, again, in communist countries, I'm talking really about free democratic countries, when people started to move away from that, even though the idea of personal rights and liberties were still in their infancy and they were still developing, uh, which, by the way, this whole idea of freedoms, we can even trace that back all the way to like the signing of the Magna Carta uh, in, in medieval England. Although it is a first step in the right direction, but the first signing of the Magna Carta was basically more rights to lords. It did nothing for the serfs or peasants, but that's a whole other topic. So one of the things that we really start to see in this period of enlightenment is the development of the arts, technology, the quality of life improves, medicine gets developed even more, architecture develops. So everything that we really associate with this period comes from this idea of the sovereign individual, of the ability to self-determine. I mean, it's still not perfect, but it's really a step in the right direction. And we can really see that when the minds of men and women are not forced to have to think about basic survival every day, that they're not tied down to the land, uh, we can really see this development, you know. Obviously, this was more of an upper-class perk because the poor were still obviously subjected to, you know, poverty. They had to really think about it. But you see slowly an uplifting of society. And today, we can really say that we've come a hell of a long way in a rather short period of time. In, in the whole span of human civilization, Personal freedoms is, is actually a pretty novel idea, and I don't think it's one that we should really take for granted. 
So that covers the political aspect of the idea, but how does that reflect back to us as individuals in this modern age? In the last episode, I spoke about the ancient Greek philosophy of hedonism and what it means, which is essentially the increasing of pleasure and the reduction of pain as a way of life, which we'll see later on kind of comes hand in hand with what I'm talking about today. Now, I have several theories and perspectives on the topic of self-determination and the sovereignty of the individual. So first off, in theory, we could say that if we have more freedoms, that means that we should have more choices, and therefore, we should be happier for it. However, I don't find that this is always a reality. Let me take the example of a restaurant, and this is an example that Anthony Bourdain brings up in his book, Kitchen Confidential, and one that I have observed myself professionally as I have worked in kitchens for over 17 years. Sometimes you'll see certain owners, and I'm sure you've noticed, sometimes you go to certain restaurants, and they have this big menu with tons of options. And the idea that these owners have is, well, if we have a big menu, and we cover as many tastes as for as many people as we want, but we're going to be able to please as many people as possible, so you get a wider range of customers that you can please. The reality is that too many choices can really confuse the customer, and having too many things on the menu basically leads to a subpar dining experience. So rather than having a smaller, more focused menu and being able to really master a small amount of dishes, you end up having a huge menu and it's almost impossible for the cooks to manage it all at once, unless you have this huge brigade, and that's usually not the case in modern age. Also, I would say that if you have a lot of freedoms and a lot of choice, then you can also make the wrong choices. So for example, speaking of myself, when I was a teenager, I had finished high school, I had the capacity to go to university or college, I had the potential to go and study a trade, but I made the choice to go and party and do drugs and to play video games and really not take into account my future in this. I made the choice of just living in the moment. It's not exactly a great career option in the long haul, I assure you. And of course, those poor choices as a reward can lead to less freedoms. Now, I'm very fortunate. I've never actually been to prison. I've come really close, but I have never gone to prison. But I will take examples from people that I have known that have went to prison for either short or longer periods of times. So let's take an example of an inmate who, say, let's serve 25 years in prison. Now, we all heard the term to be institutionalized. And what it basically means, for those who don't know, is people that have become very comfortable within the prison system, the strict rules and the regulations, you know, you get free meals, you get housing, but it's at the cost of an extreme loss of personal freedoms and liberties. I would even argue that some people in prison, they're in way bigger danger than they would be on the outside. But that depends really on the individual who's inside. Now, as I said, I know some people have been through correctional facilities and who have served for a while. And some people that were released, even years later, they said they were way more comfortable in prison than outside. It's even not unheard of for some criminals to go and commit crimes so that they can go back in prison because they actually preferred in there. For them, that life is a lot simpler. It's a lot less complicated, and they just generally have a lot less to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. And this seems quite counterintuitive when you think about it. I think the average person does not want to go to prison. But it makes sense when you change your perspective. Again, I'll refer back to my last episode on hedonism, how poor choices or no choices can lead to pain. The institutionalized person, in essence, is a person that got so used to living in prison and not having to deal with 
all the regular problems that people outside would have to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. And that doesn't account for all the other problems that they would have to deal with. Their own personal problems on top of what we'd have to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. So I can understand, it must be very difficult. I mean, I think I have some problems, but in comparison to some people that I know, my problems are nothing. I really can't blame them to choose this instead. So what does this all mean in the end? If you want to participate in the discussion, you can write to me at deadbutterflypodcast at gmail.com. It's all one word, deadbutterflypodcast at gmail.com. And I will read your emails and we can maybe make another episode and go over this topic in, uh, in, in another time. So here are my thoughts. Self-determination and the sovereignty of the individual basically means that we should be able to make decisions for ourselves without any influence from outside forces or any influence from a government or another individual. Also, as I mentioned before, living in a society, your rights should not infringe on others' rights and freedoms and vice versa. I also believe that your rights should be, at best, a net benefit to society and at worst, have no impact at all. We can also argue though that if you have too many options in a free society, it can also lead people to make the wrong choices or not know what to do. So what's the solution to this? Personally, I don't really think that we could or should regulate and dictate what people can or can't do. And if we base ourselves on history, I think we can all agree that it's just a generally all around horrible way to structure a society. So we want our freedoms and we want the ability to self-determine. So how do we know that we're going about and making the right choices? Now, from what I'm going to say from here on out is based purely on personal experience and my own opinion. First off, I believe that the, we need to figure out a way to make money in life. For that, we need to develop our own personal skills. Now, unless you're happy working as a cashier and earning minimum wage, which if that's, your, if that's what you want to do, or if that allows you to do what you want to do in life, then go ahead, there's no judgment on my part. Now, personally, in my teenage years, as I said before, I made some poor choices. Eventually, what ends up happening is that you run out of options. You don't have a lot of career options after that, or it gets really difficult to go back and to really learn a skill or go back to school. So me, personally, I ended up choosing to go into professional cooking. Just to give you a little context into this, I was roughly around 23, 24, I think it was around 23. I was living with this girl, um, she was working, she was studying in university, I was playing video games, I was uh, going in and out of random little crappy jobs, and I uh, just kept on losing them, I didn't have much ambition. But eventually something kind of clicked, I realized like, wow, I gotta, I kind of gotta get my shit together, or things are not gonna work out with her so well. She was starting to catch on on that. So, and as I was looking for jobs, I realized like I couldn't really find anything good because I didn't have any kind of skills. You know, a lot of them were like, "Oh, you need so many years' experience." So, the first job I ever had was when I was 13, and that was as a dishwasher in a, a Mike's. And I really didn't like my first experience. I'll tell you just a little funny story, real quick. It was kind of a gross story, but real story. The guy that was training me, or the guy I, would, I used to usually work with when I was um, working as a dishwasher, was this guy was like maybe 26, something like that, 26 years old. And you know when a waitress clears a table, she takes all the plates, she puts the glasses on her tray, she brings them into the back, she throws all the, um, the, the, the food and everything, all the napkins and everything in the garbage, leaves the dirty dishes, and then we usually rack them up and pass them through the machine. 
Well, this guy, I mean, when a glass came back, even if there was napkins or utensils or anything in there, if there was any alcohol left in those glasses, he would take them out and he would just drink that shit. I, oh, God, the thought of it, man. I still remember, too, as a teenager, I was just looking at him with this look of horror on my face. Like, what the fuck are you doing, guy? But, yeah, this guy, if ever there was, if there could have been, like, an inch of beer left in that glass, he would take it and he would just chug it. And he would get drunk by the end of his shift. Every shift he was drunk from drinking whatever came into that kitchen. It was honestly, it was really disgusting. So, anyways. That was my first job. Um, and I really didn't like it. Now, you hear a lot of people say that it's important to do what you love as a job. I can tell you this though. It was the easiest way for me to get into a job and to learn to develop a skill. So I really went into this first, like, I applied for a cooking job and I kind of lied. I said I did have experience. And I mean, I watched a lot of Gordon Ramsay videos and Jamie Oliver and just all kinds of different chefs. And I practiced cutting at home and, and I, I, I went to work. And I mean, the other cooks and the chefs like quickly found out that I really didn't have any experience, but... I guess they kind of respected the fact that I was trying um, and I was lucky because a lot of them really like showed me and I learned a lot of things throughout different restaurants and eventually I got the opportunity to learn, a, I got basically, I got a diploma but through an apprenticeship program in a restaurant and as time went on, you know, I just worked in more and more places, I developed my skills, you learn, you absorb and 17 year, years later, you know, I'm happy to say that I have a pretty nice CV. I worked hard. I, I have value in the industry today. But I had to work really hard for it. So is it important to do what you love? Yeah. I mean, was it something that I loved at first? No. But I learned to love what I did. I especially loved it. Even though it was not a high-paying job, it was a skilled trade. And it allowed me to pay my bills and to pay my rent. So I think what's important is to put in the work into something to be able to get to do what you love. Now today, I can't say I, I, I hate working in kitchens. I mean, I, I, more specifically as a cook, I'd have to say I even loved it for a really long time and I still kind of do, but it's just, it's not a very good retirement plan today. I don't plan on being in back of a stove in my 50s or 60s until I take my retirement. I mean, it's a good way to destroy your body. Yeah, I had to kind of move away from that. In any case, in the end, we have so many things that we can choose from. And the earlier you can take those the right choices, the better your options become. But even if you missed you, you missed out in your early in your early years and your later on, it's important to just end up on focusing on one or very few things that you can master. Just really work on those. Rather than start a whole bunch of different things and half-ass them, or just you know start them and not finish them. Like in the words of the illustrious Ron Swanson, don't half-ass two things, whole-ass one thing. Or, if I use my example from the restaurant owner from before, why would you make 50 shitty dishes when you could just master 10 of them? Instead of starting 50 different things and never really accomplishing anything or just doing them half-assed, take just one or two things and really master them. The beauty of choice and individuality and self-determination is that you can really choose from a huge category of skills and talents, and then you can develop and innovate or even create and invent from that. That's the benefit of a free-thinking society. So to self-determine, which is a very hard thing to do, it requires a lot of, uh, you know, a big sense of responsibility. 
Everything has to be a consequence of you, good or bad. If you let others plot out your destination and make choices for you or influence you into doing things, while it can be comforting in a way that if things don't work out, you can always kind of cop out of that responsibility. Well, it's not my fault. It's that person. It's not my fault. It's this person. You know, good or bad. It's never, no, no, it's not my responsibility. But you have to be responsible for yourself, good or bad. I remember the moment in my life when I realized that I was uniquely responsible for all the bad things that happened in my life. And all the good. But that moment where I realized, like, oh, this is all my fault. I made those choices. I mean, this topic, I really have a plan later on to discuss this in a future episode. Because I feel that it's a critical moment in many people's lives. And some people choose to take responsibility. Other people kind of choose that, oh, it's not my fault. And it's easier because, like, it, it helps your ego in a way. Oh, it's not my fault. But if we start accepting these things, and we start accepting the good and the bad and we shift our perspective, we're able to really start looking at the minutiae of how can we prevent these things from happening? How can we prevent these bad things from happening again? And then our actions become our own. And through this, we gain control of our lives. We can self-determine and we can become a sovereign individual. But this only comes with the mindset that you are uniquely responsible for everything that happens in your life. Unique talents and skills over different individuals over time really creates a diverse society of unique and diverse individuals. And with that diversity of people and talents, I believe that we can really all come together and we can mutually benefit from our mastered skills. It's not just you, the individual, that benefits from this, but all of us. I've mentioned this before in the other episode, and I believe I've mentioned it again, but this is the point of this podcast. I want to get people together individual sovereign people so that we can really share together and grow a proper community. So basically, I would argue, self-determination really comes down to a sense of personal responsibility, ownership of yourself and your character, and how you choose to commit to developing your skills for yourself and for others. So what's the conclusion we can draw from all this? I would say be sovereign, push past your fears and your goals, Take responsibility for yourself. Really keep a tight focus on what you want to do and put in a little work every day towards that goal. Move through the pain so that you can reach pleasure and grow that garden which is your life a little more every day. Use your talent so that we can all benefit from it after and you will be a much happier person for it afterwards and the people around you will be much happier for it. Self-determined. Keep people around you that help you grow positively and choose your path forward of all the great things this world has to offer just pick a few good a few things to be good at and then master them and keep on going from there master one thing move on to the other master one thing move on to the other i only figured this out in my early 30s but i have to say there is no age to start putting this into application and it is hard but I assure you that it's well worth it down the line. I still have a long way to go. I'm just figuring it out. As I said in my last episode, the greatest commodity that I earned from sobriety was time. And that's why I'm taking time today to say these things. Again, this is all my opinion and this is my perspective. The listeners out there, you can apply it or not. But I know I'm not the only one that says these things out there. But I genuinely believe them to be true. So on that, this concludes episode 2 of the Dead Butterflies podcast. These episodes are not really that long. I didn't know how long I wanted to do these episodes. 
I might go longer in other episodes. I guess it depends on the content. But I really hope that this gave you a little insight into what I define as the concept of self-determination and the idea of the sovereign individual. Again, if you want to add to the discussion, if you have any comments or feedback, I invite all of you to write to me at the Dead Butterfly Podcast at gmail.com. That's Dead Butterfly Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Please like and share the link to this podcast to help support it. And it's very much appreciated. And if you want to give me a mention or a shout out, I'll never be mad at that. And of course, as always, stop chasing butterflies and get digging, motherfuckers. Don't give up. I'll see you next time.